good day. This is Rob Goldstone, editor of Current Directions in Psychological Science. Today, our guest is Michael Forkoyten, professor of interdisciplinary social science at the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands and an expert on migration and ethnic relations. He is the author with Levi Edelman and Kumar Yogiswaran of a forthcoming article entitled The Psychology of Intolerance, Unpacking Diverse Understandings of Intolerance. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So to start off, are there important differences between different kinds of intolerance? Are there some things that it's okay or even positive to be intolerant about? Um, well, that's a good question because that's actually one of the reasons why we decided to write this paper. Um, if you look at the literature, there are indeed uh, a lot of debate about what uh, tolerance and intolerance actually means and that there are different understandings going around. And in our view, there are really different understandings in the sense that there are different psychologies involved. What we did in the paper is we tried to make a distinction between at least three main understandings of what intolerance could be. The first one is, is actually more what, what, what you normally would see in the literature under the label of prejudice, what we call prejudice intolerance. These are people who are actually narrow-minded, dogmatic, and have a sort of disposition to be uh, rejecting toward all kind of groups and all kind of differences. Um, that's a common understanding and a lot of people analyze it in that way. So um, intolerance is here more or less equated with uh, prejudice. Uh, this is a little bit different than the second understanding that we have and that we call intuitive intolerance. And this is actually that you have some negative feelings towards specific practices of beliefs, even of individuals and, and groups that you like so that you are not prejudiced against. So you can have dislike towards some of the behavior of your child or of the political views of your partner. So that does not have to be based on narrow-mindedness or group-based prejudice, but it, of, it involves a sort of failure to overcome your negative gut feelings towards a particular behavior and to allow the other to live the life that they or he or she wants. To grant that person the equal rights to live and the liberties that you have. Mm -hmm. And this failure, of course, often results in rationalizations because you try to, to give all kind of good reasons why you think it should not be tolerated. But in general, you act, it's actually a sort of failure to have a sort of equal rights for others like you yourself. Um, mm -hmm. This is also something that you can see, for instance, what they call in the literature on uh, asymmetry of uh, tolerance. And that means actually that it's more easy to make people intolerant than to make them tolerant. And the reason is, of course, that with tolerance, there's a sort of di cognitive dissonance. Tolerance in this meaning means you are negative towards something, but you refrain from acting upon it. So there's a dis discrepancy between attitude and behavior. With intolerance, that's not. You're negative and you interfere with it, you act on it. So that's more easy to do. So people are more inclined when they intuitively do not like something to also act against it. And therefore it's very difficult to, to, to stop that. So intolerance is more easy there. Now the third, the third meaning that's related to the second part of your question 
is there can also what we have called normative intolerance. And that has to do with the, the, the limits of tolerance. And no individual or society can be tolerant of everything, eh? such as theft or drink driving or child abuse or the famous paradox of tolerance, meaning that you can't be tolerant toward the intolerant. That was already expressed, for instance, by Popper in his book, Open Society. Because if you would do that, it, it, then tolerance becomes self-destructive in the end. So a, a, a concrete example would be that almost, although most people will think, for instance, that a marriage should be based on love and support, right? You can be mm -hmm. tolerate a marriage filled with anger and resentment, but spousal abuse, most people will think that's unacceptable. We can't tolerate that. So there are also moral convic convictions, normative beliefs, uh, which made some practices intolerable. And even if you then do not act against it, it becomes a sort of culpable negligence. So in, in policy terms, it's often labeled as a zero tolerance, right? Something that sets ground rules, a code of conduct about practices that are really not acceptable. Now, of course, you can argue what is acceptable or not. And these are, of course, the, you can think very differently about that, also in, in a historical perspective or in a cultural perspective. But within a particular period and culture, you will find that people really care about these these issues. And there are also, mm -hmm. also, also research that shows, for instance, cross-culturally, there are some more basic moral principles that people think are valid across different contexts. So that's right. exactly what, what we're trying to do, to, to try to, to, well, explain that there are these different forms of intolerance. And the difference is really because the psychological processes involved seems to be quite different. Right, right. So do the distinctions that you just drew between kinds of intolerance allow us to unambiguously classify situations into different kinds of intolerance? And if not, what is the good or what's the purpose in drawing the distinctions? Does it give us a useful perspective for figuring out how to combat intolerances that we judge to be illegitimate? So building on what you just said at the end, should we be dealing with different kinds of intolerance in different ways? Yeah, no, I don't think we, it, we, it's very easy to, to classify these different forms very unambiguously in, in, in all kinds of situations. Sometimes it's difficult. Well, the purpose of actually what we're trying to do is, again, is to, to try to understand these different forms in terms of the different psychologies. And this is not only important, I think, for theoretical reasons, but also for applied reasons. For, for example, that first one, that prejudice intolerance, actually what should be done there is simply group-based prejudice, means group-based prejudice reduction, right? That's, that's the approach there. So there's a lot, large literature on prejudice reduction and what works and what does not work and, and all the, the difficulties there. So intolerance based on that intuitive gut feelings and the rationalizations that offer goes with it, that requires something else. That requires a sort of transcending the limitations of these gut feelings, learning your rationalizations, get involved in deliberative thinking, get involved in dialectical thinking, paradoxical thinking, instrumental thinking, and so on, these kind of things. So it's not overcoming your, 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 your uh, prejudice towards a particular group, but think more deeply about why you object to certain things and why you want to interfere with certain practices. Now, and the other one, 
that actually is something else because that's that requires actually that you consider and learn to think when and why things cannot be tolerated because for instance they undermine the moral fabric of society so that means for instance that for civic education yeah, you should not only teach people about uh, demo the importance of de for democracy of intolerance but also about the limits of tolerance and why for example in our western society suppression of free speech or the silencing of ideological opponents or violent threats and so on are problematic. So in that case, here it means actually tolerance is not um, something that should be uh, um, learned unconditionally. Children should also learn, students should also learn what the limits are and why these limits are there and when these limits are important. So in right. that sense, I think, yeah, this is really important to make that distinction. Yeah, that makes Great sense. So given the distinctions that you've drawn, I worry that sometimes people believe that they are showing what you're calling normative intolerance, having principled reasons for finding a practice unacceptable, but really the driving force is prejudicial or intuitive intolerance. So do people give themselves the benefit of the doubt too much? when they are judging others? For example, do people flexibly adopt different normative standards when it would allow them to treat in-group and out-group members differently? Certainly, certainly. I think uh, rationalizations, um, justifications, that's really a great enemy of tolerance, right? Mm -hmm. uh, prejudice, negative gut feelings often drive all kind of attempts to provide well, understandable reasons for, for all kind of unacceptable judgments. So there is a wealth of, re of research evidence on this. Research on motivated cognition, on biased parochial fairness, you name it. So people are very often involved and very clever to fool themselves, even if they don't know, and to fool others, right? They, make, they try to make unreasonable things sound reasonable. And they use double standards for in-group, out-group distinction. So there is so much uh, evidence for that. Okay. So, yeah. and indeed, I, I often think, uh, so much of the social psychological literature is actually about that. It's about identifying and examining these sorts of rationalizations and justifications. And it's very important to do that. But I think in addition to that, the powers, of, the powers that we have, our reasoning powers are not only used for this, there also is a large literature that shows that people can engage and do engage in deliberate thinking, in analytical, propositional, uh, rule-based, reflective reasoning. And these are also human abilities. And they're very critical, I think, for, for getting a grip on social reality and also for debate. But the, one example is, for instance, the distinction between discrimination and differential treatment, which is a very important one which people also understand, right? Discrimination is that you make a distinction between people on the basis of reasons that are inadequate. You do not hire somebody because he's black or she's a, she's a woman. Differential treatment is when you treat somebody on the basis of a group membership when you think there are adequate reasons for that. We think it's adequate, it's reasonable to say a, ch a child of 12 years can't drive a car. Or when you're 65, you get uh, you have, can have a state pension or whatever. So in in legal rules and the law, there is what they call the doctrine of reasonable classification. 
which indicates that there are often good reasons to make distinctions between categories of people. So not all categor categorical distinctions are discrimination. They are also sometimes differential treatments for good reasons. Now, of course, you can argue what are good reasons, and this will change. This will change in time. I mean, 30 years ago, I don't think people would say it's discrimination to say I don't hire you because you're a woman and you can become pregnant and have these costs involved and so on. But nowadays, we, although we do not always think it, but we don't do it because we consider this not fair. So, of course, there will be changes in that. But the fact that people make the distinction and the fact that the distinction between reasonable and unreasonable as it's being made is being made everywhere, but then in different ways. Well, I think that's very fundamental and society can't do without that distinction. Debate can't do without it. Yeah, great, great. So um, are we living in particularly intolerant times or does it just seem that way? Perhaps it always seems that way no matter when one is living. What do you think? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. That's also a question that, for, for example, is, is much debated in political science. Right, something like has society since the 1960s or 70s become more tolerant or now? And what political scientists show is that the answer depends on what you're looking at. For instance, anal analysis of U.S. data indicate that uh, that people have become much more tolerant over over the years, especially, for example, of homosexuality, gay marriage, that's sometimes being called moving a mountain. But at the same time. They, these, these analysis also show that there is a trend towards reduced tolerance, for instance, of offensive, of racist speech. And that is especially interesting among liberals and college-educated uh, people. Mm -hmm. And they consider this more psychological harm rather than uh, free speech. So mm -hmm. for them, it's more a form of what they would call normative intolerance, where others see it as a form of intuitive intolerance. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think that, yeah, we probably, why intolerance is so important and, and so much discussed nowadays is also because it has to do with the increased diversity in many societies. Without difference, of course, there is no need for tolerance. And increased diversity makes uh, tolerance increasingly necessary. So it's actually diversity together with, with equality, if you like, and peace that makes tolerance a critical ingredient in many societies. But this increased diversity due to immigration and all kinds of developments also means that intolerance is more likely. For many people, it's really a challenge to live with diversity, to accommodate people of very different cultures and religions, and to accept them and to learn to accept them as equals, equal citizens with equal rights. So in that sense, many people are more confronted nowadays with diversity on a daily basis. So they have struggling more with questions of what should be accepted, what can't be accepted anymore, where do I draw the lines, what is uh, uh, unacceptable, what is intolerable and not. So in that sense, it might appear that people are more struggling with this question, but I also think that in actual reality, a lot of people are, because they are living in more diverse times, if you like. Exactly, great. So one last question for you. Given your research, are there recommendations that you have for how we should be collectively structuring discourses about whether particular practices should be allowed? 
I'm thinking about substantive controversies in institutional policies, like whether we should allow a baker in the United States of America to refuse to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple or making it illegal for Islamic students in France to wear hijab headscarves in school. Uh, I'm not asking you necessarily to weigh in with your own personal opinions of what we should do in these cases, but popping up a level, what should the ground rules be for assuring respectful and fair discourse as we have public discussions of these controversies? Yeah, that, that's that's a very important question, of course, but also a very difficult one. Yeah. Um, well, there are a couple of things that I think are indeed important. Some of these uh, issues have to also to do with that people have little knowledge about what exactly are the motives of the reasons for why people from another group do certain things in a, in a particular way. So things like perspective taking and intercultural interactions would really help to stimulate a better understanding, a better understanding of specific reasons behind these practices and beliefs. I mean, there is some research that shows that people, when people know that there are cultural reasons behind certain things or informational reasons or moral reasons why people do certain things, that that matters for whether they should, will or do not want to tolerate these issues, right? So a better understanding about why and what people are doing rather than, yeah, well, lean on stereotypes or all kind of notions that that would certainly help. Another thing that of course will ha what helps is that authorities, uh, politicians, policymakers, whatever, they have an important role to play here. They have an important role in setting the agenda, toleration norms, building inclusive institutions and so on. Uh, I think that that's very important. On a more basic level, if you look at the country level, then of course full citizenship is, is very very important. Um, a lot of minority members, especially also immigrants, often have the feeling that they are being treated and seen as secondary uh, citizens, secondary class citizens, which is of course very, very negative, and which also uh, leads to all kinds of problems in society. So I think yeah, these kind of general measures are very important. Uh, there is a lot is happening on this front. I mean, it's not only that in different countries are trying to deal with these issues, but also, for instance, on the level of the European Union, they have a whole agenda for tolerance for the coming years. The, uh, UNESCO uh, has, has a whole agenda of stimulating tolerance. But there are all kind of initiatives in trying to, to make it a better situation for all of us in, in, in a diverse society in which we increasingly live. Great. Okay, good. So that uh, ends on a note of optimism, which is much needed in these times. Um, so thank you, Michael, for your valuable insights into the causes and possible ways of dealing with intolerance. And thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you.